Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Andy Johns. Andy was an exec at Wealthfront and previously did growth at Quora, Twitter, Facebook, uh, other places as well, and is now a partner at Unusual Ventures. Andy, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to this. Awesome. Andy, uh, I want to talk about your investment focus at at, at Unusual. Uh, A few places you're excited about. One of them is fintech. We're lucky to have a co-investment in the space. Why don't you unpack uh, how you got so excited about that space and, and what your investment thesis is for that space. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the root, root cause of it was, was definitely my experience at Wealthfront. You know, that was the origin of it and getting started there in the, the sort of mid or early part of, of 2013. So uh, the, the sort of modern wave of FinTech is something that I've been interested in for the better part of seven years now. And, and so it was a natural extension after all that time and experience to then you know, continue looking for great opportunities today. The, the way that I think about it is I sort of abstract it up a little bit where I fundamentally think about uh, this thesis and some of the others as a, a market access problem. Right? It's like technology itself is meant to be and it is fundamentally egalitarian, right? It, it's it's moving in the direction of providing more access and a level playing field. And there's all sorts of markets, including healthcare, education, finance, where when you go way back in time, 100, 200 years, you can, you can see this arc of how access has changed over time. But I'll use FinTech as the example right now, where in the you know, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, into the 70s, the form of access at the time was I could walk into a retail building. I could go into an office with somebody at Merrill Lynch and I could, you know, shake a hand. And that was the the form of access at the time. And so it it was the creation of all these retail installments that provided access to the generation at that time. And then starting in the seventies with companies like Schwab, uh, interestingly enough, they were the technology innovator at the time. The technology that they introduced was, the ability for anyone to pick up a phone and buy or sell uh, a security over the phone. And that was a huge leap in access. And so you went from a handshake to a phone call. And of course, the incumbents at the time said, oh, who on earth would ever do that? That's irresponsible. Why would you ever buy stock from a broker you've never really met? As if that actually mattered. And that trend has just sort of continued with you know the Schwabs of the world succeeding, obviously becoming a big successful firm today off of the back of being the technology innovator and growing with the the boomer generation. And then you get into the early internet access days and the the growth and adoption of personal computers, uh, the adoption of of desktop internet access, and then the E-Trades of the world then produced another step change in market access where anyone could hop on the internet so long as you had uh, some computer of some type and you can connect to the internet and then you can buy and sell trade uh, on, on the internet. So 
you went from handshakes to phone calls <laughs> to, you know, a website on a personal computer. And then with the, uh, the current era, really with the, the sort of mobile first introduction of really broad market access on smartphones, you have the wealth fronts and the Robin hoods of the world. And so when I'm thinking about investing in, in technology companies and in particular in FinTech at this point, I'm looking for what is that next step in what's going to provide uh, broader market access. What's interesting right now is there's an argument that at least in tier one developed markets, there aren't any more technology barriers to adoption, but there are still a lot of people sitting on the sideline, right? There's a lot of people who are not actively engaged in the market and that's because it's still sort of scary and off-putting for one reason or another. And I suspect that this next big wave is going to be more of like a behavioral shift in how people think about engaging in markets and may fundamentally be something that's more social in nature, which is something that I'm spending a lot of time exploring. Uh, so so that's, that's how I think about uh, the fintech sector, at least from the consumer-facing side. Uh, and then, of course, there's still a massive amount of plumbing that needs to be built behind the scenes because ACH... Uh, still sucks. And there's a tremendous volume of, of capital that's flowing across ACH. Paper-based processes are still abundant when it comes to mortgages and other forms of loan origination and processing and servicing. And so there's just an outrageous amount of plumbing that still needs to be built because it should be a point where then everything is virtually instantaneous and they're in, in terms of money flows and uh, there aren't these arbitrary walls pre- preventing a consumer from moving their capital that's domiciled in one place over to another and for that to be effortless. So that's more broadly how I think about things. And w- what's it going to look like uh, sort of, you know, social, uh, is it going to be like, Hey, I make this trade and now all my friends see it and they're going to follow me or w- w- what is sort of a, a social network around, you know, in FinTech going to look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't know for sure. <laughs> uh, there are multiple variations of it. There's, there's the version where uh, it's sort of peer comparison oriented, where you have one person competing against another person based on the amount that they've saved or how much they've invested or their return or whatever it may be. Historically, from what I've seen is that the individual is, is, isn't actually motivated very much by peer comparison when it comes to money at least insofar as, as that driving towards somebody getting into the markets and then exhibiting better behaviors. So I, I think peer comparison will be a, a, like a tertiary part of the experience, not the core part of the experience. I think it'll be some version where it's a blend of social and sort of education or information. Historically, how the industry is, has approached the education challenge or the, this big education gap when it comes to financial knowledge and literacy is you, know, you produce white papers uh, and only 1% of your visitors, if that, will read a white paper. That's not an effective approach. They'll make videos. They make landing pages and other forms of marketing collateral that attempt to sort of simplify basic concepts. But most people are busy and the way in which that information is prepared today isn't that engaging and they've got lives to live and they're focused on other things. And so like this traditional sort of, I'll call it like essay based approach to financial education just 
it's never really shifted the proportion of, of the human population that is very financially literate or even just moderately financially literate. I would argue it's kind of trending the opposite direction. Um, and, and, and so I, I, but, but there is a behavior and analog that exists, which is most people, when they make a important financial decision, they turn to somebody that they know and trust and that they're close with. And so I'm not going to make a decision on a mortgage based on surveying 30 of my friends, but I probably will if I talk to my brother or when it comes to what tax advisor I should use, that's definitely true. Or what might I do when I'm exercising and selling stock or uh, startup equity? You tend to turn to one or two close connections that you can really trust. And it's through that analog exchange where then knowledge is shared where I can tell my friends about what I've learned through Wealthfront and the values of diversification, low, ta- uh, low fees, and, and uh, tax efficiency. And then they're really likely to engage or much more likely to engage in markets once a credible reference has provided knowledge uh, in, in a simple format. And, and so that's where I think like it's going to be some version of social meets education. And that's why I think like, I'm really looking for an environment in which the way I term it is like the next 1000 Jim Cramers can be minted on the platform um, where it's somebody you you establish a relationship with um, because you trust that brand and you really appreciate the style and the way in which they communicate. Uh, and, And you see examples of this all over the place outside of finance. You know, it's like if, if Tim Ferriss, says that he highly vouches for a product, the adoption rate of that product from his own uh, follower base is incredibly high because he's done a very good job of nurturing that audience uh, and, and building a trusted relationship. So whatever form that looks like, I, it's hard to see how the pixels come together on, on screen, but that's the intersection of what I think is going to be at the core of it. And, and like the one thing I mentioned earlier of like, the incumbents will say, oh, that's irresponsible, blah, blah, blah. They've been saying the same thing forever. And the counter question I ask is like, what's the alternative? Because the incumbents are charging the high fees and and the high minimums. And at the end of the day, 30 years into your relationship with them, they've siphoned off 20, 30, 40% of your net worth through the fees that, that they charge you, maybe even more. And they're not providing a viable alternative. So the, the alternative uh, that they're implying is that then these people should just stay on the sidelines until all of a sudden they're a millionaire. And it's just ridiculous to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I see this. So I also agree with that. See, you see basically, you know, social relationships or using social to help make better investment decisions. I, I also, or better financial decisions. I also think there's an opportunity to have, and not these are, you know, mutually exclusive, but also the reverse where, you know, using financial data to make better social relationships. I'm envisioning sort of a, a social networks around receipts uh, or sort of like Venmo tried to be, but just way better. I mean, what people spend money on says a lot about them. It says about the artists they support, the, you know, experiences they support, the causes they support, um, you know, where they travel to. And I think there are ways to sort of create better, uh, you know, social network uh, on, on top of that, you know, in a way that Venmo never really, Venmo nailed peer to peer, but it didn't nail the sort of, you know, broader social network. Yeah, that's probably a good point. You know, and there was like one of the first broader scale attempts at that was Facebook beacon going back to like seven or six or whatever it was. And like, 
it was just ahead of its time. (laughs) Really sort of blew up at the moment. But like you said, like, you know, Venmo is effectively that. And it's somehow kind of this interesting, funny, quirky experience uh, that the consumer has become more comfortable with. And there's got to be another evolution of that. Uh, So I think you're probably right. Totally. Let's transition to transportation. And that, that's the space you, you're excited about, you invested in, you've written about. Talk about how you got excited about that space and, and where particularly within uh, transportation you're, you're most excited about and where your thesis is. Yeah, so same broad theming around market access, right? Uh, but, but just to bring it down to rubber meets road a little bit more, it started with the simple observation and personal experience that these alternative modes of transportation are fun. and that matters because when you see somebody smiling on a scooter that's product market fit offline and enough people have have used rideshare and micro mobility solutions to realize that for the sort of sub five mile transportation problem which is roughly 60 percent of all human transportation is just within a few miles like that hasn't necessarily really been solved for in the evolution of uh, broader transportation, right? So we sort of went from like sail ships as a reliable option for going like continent to continent. <laughs> and then once you're within this landmass, there's the introduction of rail uh, railroads, the introduction of uh, steamboats and other watercraft to sort of make your way up and down rivers and through manufactured canals. Uh, and then the, the highway systems were introduced in cars and all these things. When you, when you look at it, it's like, that's incredible. Not to mention airplanes, but like most of them were designed around how you move large groups of people over long distances. And then that's what led to uh, uh, contributed to the proliferation of humanity. Right. And then it's, now all of a sudden we're all over the place. And then you fast forward a few decades or a couple hundred years, and then all of a sudden humanity is living in these increasingly dense environments where urbanization is sort of at its peak. And it was not too long ago, just a handful of years ago, in which the percent of the human population living in an urban environment eclipsed the percent of the human population living in a rural environment for the first time in human history, Uh, which is just a fascinating random tidbit, right? You're like, wow. hadn't thought about that before, but all of a sudden we're really close to each other. And then we're really close to each other in these environments where cities were built in three dimensions, uh, but transportation was built in two dimensions. uh, And that contributed to transportation and congestion problems within these increasingly dense environments, because it just made more sense for the average person to sort of move to a, a big city because you had greater access to healthcare and education and food and water and all that stuff. And so those two things combined. And then all of a sudden you realize like getting around in a major city sucks. It's a pain in the ass. And the public transportation for the most part, not in all cases, but public transportation provided by federal state and municipal governments hasn't been able to keep up with the pace at which civilization is is sort of converging around these cities. And so that's where it gets really interesting, where all of a sudden it's like we had a few hundred years of technology, innovations in technology around 
bulk transport over long distances where it's now flipped on its head where it's like, let's innovate around short form transportation that's now been atomized down to the individual. And that's what the scooter represents. And that's what rideshare represents. And as I mentioned, that's a huge portion of human transportation now. It didn't used to be, but it sure as hell is now. And you could say that maybe the bicycle was the last time that happened, but that's pretty old technology. And our throughways aren't designed in most cases to support them. So that's the overarching view. Uh, and so with that lens, it then seems clearly inevitable that over some time frame, it may be 40 years, 50 years, as opposed to the next four or five years. I think that's the question from an investor standpoint is there's, there's going to continue to be these big changes in optimizing atomized transportation of the individual over short distances. And there's going to be an explosion of these different flavors through which a person can then transport. And in addition to that, the urban infrastructure has to adapt and change. But it's really a business model problem in, in a few ways, meaning obviously for these mobility companies, the, the scooter companies, the rideshare companies, they have to figure out how to make the economics work. Uh, especially in today's environment, um, and today's environment will like it is leading to a sort of thinning out of the herd, such that there are going to be fewer of them to fight over this market, and that's going to be beneficial for them making money in the long term, at least for those that survive. Uh, but then there's also this business model challenge around like how do you finance the development of new infrastructure? Because it, it's great if we got scooters all over the place, but if there's nowhere for them to go. <laughs> then we're missing a critical part of the equation. And if you study the history of transportation, then the state, federal, and municipal governments have to play a huge role in that. The money has to come from somewhere so that these cities have the capital required to lay more bike lanes. And the hypothesis that I'm operating under is that it's this mutually beneficial cycle where if the mobility companies of today and those into the future want to succeed, they have to now engage in a close relationship with our local, state, and federal governments in some situation that's mutually beneficial, unlike what it was like in the early days of the Ubers and Lyfts just sort of dropping themselves into a city. But that era is gone. So now it's the inverse. It's all about cooperation. And in particular, what I think is going to happen is that these governments, they see the writing on the wall. They know this is what their constituents want and need. They can feel that their infrastructure can't keep up. And so they're going to develop more of the infrastructure to support these new form, forms of transportation. And they're going to do that in two ways. Uh, one is going to be through sort of broader introduction of taxes, where then they, they sort of redistribute uh, wealth, so to speak, from from the average taxpayer into some fund that then goes to new, new transportation infrastructure projects. And it's not too dissimilar from the gas tax, right? It's like governments, they, get, they tax gas <laughs> and they kind of need to, right? They have to take care of roads. So that's gonna happen, but I also think there's gonna be a relationship between public and private sector where now that we're past this unregulated era and fully into the regulated era of transportation, the cities are going to be taxing the Ubers and the Lyfts and the birds of the world. They're going to tax them. And it's happening already. It's just, you know, it's happening in a dispersed way, but they're going to tax them for using their infrastructure. 
And they're going to say, I need 10 cents per mile or per ride or whatever it may be. And that there's going to be some technology or software that sits there in the middle and helps bring these two sides of the marketplace together. Because the cities, they need modern software to help then exercise that tax collection. They need to be able to like track all these rides that are taking place and dynamically load balance the infrastructure itself based on all these new mobility players. They need software to then say like, sorry, Uber, in this one street with this one bike or this one car, you're out of compliance. And so here's a compliance fee that I'm charging you. And they need to be able to claw that money away from Uber and into their, into their banks so that they can afford to, to then invest in building this new infrastructure. So that's what I think is going to happen. And that's sort of the, the core part of my investment thesis is, I guess you could say the inevitable collaboration uh, between public and private sector uh, and the introduction of broad scale usage tax on the mobility players where they're going to have to pay to use the infrastructure. And then that's where I see the opportunity to exist. And, so, and say more about what types of startups are enabled by that or, or empowered by that. Yeah. yeah so, uh, I mean, that is specifically one of my investments is ride report. That's what they do, right. Is like, they, they, you know, they provide the modern technology to the cities so that the cities could monitor and regulate and, eventually uh, probably tax this part of the market, but really so that the cities know what the hell they they're doing, right? Because they're flying in the blind right now. And I can't blame them for wanting, wanting to do this. They need visibility into how their streets are being used. And then all the mobility operators, this is already the case today. They're required to fork over data and to adhere to these new rules and, and to be compliant on hardware, on usage, on software, on all sorts of things. And so I think that there's software that's going to be the market maker there. It's like, just bring them together. It, it's going to have to happen. Totally. I want to segue into your other thesis on, on low code, no code. Why don't you talk a little bit about again, how, how you got excited there and, and what's your unpack your investment thesis? Yeah. So this one, I, I, I have to be, transparent is I've fleshed out the least and, but also I'll, I'll sort of spitball it because I'm still continuing to, to think things through. I think there's all sorts of vectors at which I got interested in this ranging from having used WordPress for a really long time and then switched over to Webflow. Right. Uh, I am a huge, huge fan of that company and what they're doing um, and think that they have the potential of like Shopify scale success someday. So that, that's one vector of it. The, uh, the other is having been a former operator and seeing how Jamstack-like technologies um, can make uh, the arduous parts of sort of marketing development, web development that you do when spinning up a website and uh, new landing pages and all that stuff, like that should be drastically easier than it is today where most startups are still custom coding a marketing landing page that the marketing team needs. And then that takes way longer than is expected. And then no one's happy along the way (laughs) because the engineers definitely don't want to do it. And the marketers are frustrated because they don't know how to get access to engineering uh, staffing via roadmap process. And so that, that entire approach is broken. Um, And then the third vector is 
which is super exciting. And I mean, this is personally relevant to you is like the ability for an individual to build a massive business online and to take agency over their life. So I subscribe to, I heard Naval, I think, frame this the best of, we went from, and I'm sure he, he was, it's sort of derivative. He, he took it from somewhere else or read it somewhere else. But like this idea that everyone used to be their own boss for a long period of time, where if you needed food or shelter, you just sort of, <laughs> you figured it out. You know, you made pots and you sold those to the local like metal worker or whatever it was. And, and it was this economy of a bunch of individual crafts people who are effectively independently employed. And you can still see that today in underdeveloped countries, the percent of the employed population that are independently employed is really high. But then if you look at the percent of the population that's independently employed in modern, fully developed markets, uh, like look at it in Sweden or something like that, it's like 6%. It's a very small percentage. And so the vast majority of civilization is now aggregated around large monolithic companies within large monolithic industries in the private sector or aggregated around these large monolithic organizations in the, in the public sector for state and federal government. And so with everyone now aggregated around these things, everybody's got a boss and bosses and their bosses have bosses and the bosses have bosses, bosses. And it almost coincides perfectly with the statistics around the percent of people in developed markets who are displeased and unhappy with their life. And because when you unpack that data and you look into the reasons why, like the dominant reason in most of these uh, studies is dissatisfaction with work. And, and there's hypotheses and research around this, but it's like why the dissatisfaction with work is because you don't have individual agency anymore. Like I don't get to choose what I do with my day to day and I have to work on crap that's uninteresting to me and deal with bad coworkers and backstabbing or whatever it may be. There's all these different flavors of why you get dissatisfied with your work, but at the core of it is you don't have agency over what you do and what your art is, so to speak, the craft that you take pride in um, and that you're good at. And because you're good at, you feel satisfied with your work. And all of a sudden the internet comes along and it's got, now we've laid a few decades worth of like legitimate infrastructure that is sort of abstracting us away from the technical guts of it all, where then you could use Webflow plus a bunch of other products and tools to then string together uh, a business of one. And because it's a business of one and I have a website and I have a voice and a brand and a podcast and all these other things, all of a sudden I'm creating my art and I have agency again. And I think the thrust of humanity, especially <laughs> relevant to right now, is going to be towards like, damn it, I want to get happy again. I want to be in control of my life. I want to be in control of what I do every single day because I'm sick of this shit. And like, you can feel it and you can see it on these people's faces when they're like sad and the big bags under their eyes and they're just like, you can it's, it looks like they're dragging themselves into the office. Right, like they're just barely propped up by a couple of strings, just just delicately holding on. So now the time frame on that is long. We're seeing examples of it today that are really interesting. But like that principle of 
you sort of overestimate the impact in the near term and underestimate the impact in the long term, I think absolutely applies here. And, and so I'm really interested in it because it's fulfilling. What if I can invest in some entrepreneurs who build something cool that then mints 100,000 new independently employed, happy people? That's pretty amazing. And so I get animated by that. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's the core of it. Totally. Now, you, uh, I'd be you know, remiss if I didn't point out that you, you, you obviously spent you know, many years at some of the biggest consumer social companies ever, you know, the biggest ones, Facebook, Twitter, and, 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 and Quora. Where are you in consumer social right now in 2020? Is, <laughs> yeah. You're too late um, and thus, you know, less opportunity or how do you think about that given you spend so much time in it? Sure. So the, those platforms benefited from a couple of things uh, and they did a lot of things right. And they were sort of riding this 20-year tailwind of internet adoption and then the introduction of smartphones and, and access. But then, you know, we could have 4, 4.2, 4.3, whatever the number is. Let's call it 4.3 billion people who have internet access reliably. And the growth rates on that are petering out. And then similarly, you can look at engagement data. It's like engagement the in terms of the amount spent online is at an all-time high. Uh, but it's also sort of petering out because people are starting to question, and we know this now, how much time they should spend with these technologies, right? Six and a half hours a day, I think, is the average right now, which is kind of insane. And again, today's networks, these social products were huge drivers of that. They benefited from that thrust of the introduction of these technologies through access and the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's really succeeded in bringing true identity online for the first time. And then you see different attempts at variable identity models with flexible identity, like on the, the Twitters and the Reddits, where you can choose to disclose who you really are, but you don't have to. Uh, and then there was this experimentation with like entirely anonymous products with the whispers and secrets. But then that really quickly sort of turned into a pretty toxic environment. And that was a, a short experiment. I think the end result of that, at least for the time being was like, ah, yeah, this anonymous identity, identity model doesn't really work. And so the, the thing that has prevailed through that though, is like true identity and uh, sort of open and public by default has been the standard. And it was kind of like a glacier carving a wedge through a valley. I would argue that that was necessary to bring social into uh, uh, into the internet. And so, but then you're seeing like a reversion away, arguably beginning with that first cluster of messaging apps and Snap, and uh, Snap really as the most notable company in my mind, where, you know, with the messaging apps, you are engaging in a closed private environment uh, with a few people, uh, but you were sort of having a very different type of conversation and form of engagement, but that was a reflection of how people naturally share and communicate, which tends to be in these intimate private clusters. Uh, and that was the premise of ephemerality on Snap to begin with, which was it's not open in public by default. It's shifting back towards a form of communicating that's so much closer to how people actually communicate in, in an analog uh, world where a message disappears. And the reason it, that matters is because then it reduces cognitive friction. And if you remove cognitive friction, you share more freely and intimately. And 
that's continuing. And I think you're just seeing multiple different flavors of this desire for intimacy um, and privacy through uh, a variety of different sort of more closed group oriented messaging products and communication platforms. Uh, You're still seeing the open and public piece, but that remains like the outgrowths of that have been more entertainment oriented, right? Uh, TikTok, of course. And that's really where these sort of like big public influencers came in is like, it's a version of entertainment. And that makes sense. It's like entertainment is meant to be open and public. You know, that's sort of it by, uh, by definition. But then I, I think like, if I had to argue what, what's going to happen after like this next feeling or wave that's creeping in is what I would call like the nuance era where like Twitter is now where you go to air out uh, and show your own ignorance because like, there's no way to have any sort of nuanced interaction in an open and public environment like that. And I think people are like, I'm personally sick of it. Like it's just a bunch of quips, like everything is short form and it sounds good on the surface. But if you really spent time digging underneath and asked, like, let me peel back the onion on this and see if there's real substance. Most of the stuff that's shared is like garbage. It's nonsense. Um, But it sounds good at first. And uh, I think like that's just another version of how an awful lot of the average person is becoming more aware of the low quality of information that is so broadly and generously available now that they're starting to seek nuance. And I mean, you can look at the biggest podcast in the world, look at Joe Rogan. And that's basically what he provides is like three hours of nuance. Do I want to read an article on slate or CNN or Fox or Buzzfeed or whatever it is about Bernie Sanders's position on universal health care that's been passed through two or three or four editorial lenses? Or do I want to like put in some earbuds and listen to him and Joe Rogan talk in a nuanced way for three hours without filter? I want that. And, and we're voting with our ears and our feet. <laughs> and you're seeing traditional media attack those independent creators and tack the Joe Rogans of the world when it's really, really clear that like they haven't actually listened to any of his episodes. They haven't really studied what's going on there. And I use him as just one example, but there are like dozens and hundreds of them now. And it's fantastic. And I think the same thing is going to happen in social. I would argue that uh, that's what clubhouse is. And so you could frame it as audio only social network which is true. And there's all sorts of virtues that come with that. But when I peel it back, I say, well, what is the core of it? That's valuable. One piece is access. So if I hear a conversation between two people that I really admire and I would otherwise never be able to hear that, uh, get access to that content or information, that's delightful. I appreciate that. But then the, the, I think the subtext beneath that is it's nuance. And uh, I believe that there's going to be a huge thrust in that direction. And we're seeing a few flavors of it already. Are there other types of companies that you think might emerge that would capitalize on, on that or manifest that? Yes. And I just invested in one, but I can't say it yet. 
<laughs> cool. Cool. Well, glad to find out. The, um, you, you did make an investment in Baller TV. Uh, just sort of, you know, uh, I don't know if it's an entertainment platform for sports or a social network for sports or, or both. How do you think about why that or just the broader trend? Is it sort of vertical social networks? Is it entertainment or media? Talk, talk about that. Yeah, so Baller, and for folks who aren't familiar with it, it, they began with live streaming amateur sports. So at first I viewed that one through a more traditional investment lens of I like looking for technology uh, forward companies that figure out how to sort of flip business models on its head for incumbent industries that are absent technology. So really introducing the innovator's dilemma uh, where they have to change their business model. And the only way they can change their business model is through the adoption of technology. And I saw, you know, this universal thing, sports. And the vast majority of people who play sports are kids. (laughs) And I think, gosh, I think there's like one or 200 million kids around the world who just play soccer. So this huge market um, still running off of like, 1950s media, right? So if you want to learn about an amateur athlete, you have to read the local newspaper from that one person in that one town who writes about local athletes. And what I saw was a company that had figured out how to flip the business model and the economics on its head. So if ESPN was going to shoot and record uh, a LeBron James basketball game, that's a a roughly fifty to hundred thousand dollar endeavor. That's the cost associated with them producing one game, and so that's why they would produce the LeBron James game because the economics would work out okay. It was just you know this once in a generation phenom, and, and so the ESPNs of the world can't scale that <laughs> down to amateur sports. Um, but what if you could figure out how to live stream and record at extremely high quality on what's becoming commodity technology with a smartphone? You have to do a lot of work in uh, with the software in order to make that work. Uh, but that's where the, the opportunity is. And so you can go from it costing $70,000 to shoot one high school, high school game and broadcast it nationally uh, with high, high fidelity to 10 bucks. <laughs> and that was the technology that I saw within an absurdly large dinosaur market absent technology. And uh, I just thought, well, hell, that seems like a really good opportunity. And so and Baller, that's what they're doing at its core. And then I think there is a massive potential for it to have marketplace characteristics, right, to connect coaches and scouts with players and families, right? If, if there, there is an access problem that they're solving, not only for the parent who can't attend their kid's game um, or in today's current climate where games are going, but no one can sit in the, in the, in the crowd, but it sure would be able to, it sure would be nice to be able to watch my kid play remotely, whether it's due to COVID or it's because I had to work late. Or if it's the, the coach in, in Kansas who is missing out on an incredibly talented person based in Texas, but because they don't have the budget and a private airplane, they can't fly down there to watch this kid play. So back to what I mentioned at the very beginning, it's this egalitarian nature of it all that I find really compelling. So there's that marketplace 
characteristic to it. And I think in the longer run, if you bring all of these amateur games onto the platform, which they're having tremendous success of doing that, and they're enabling this marketplace between games and families and coaches and scouts and, and players, there's most certainly going to be the introduction of player identity into this platform. And you can build uh, something interesting and social around that. If we're doing this podcast you know, two years from now, what, what uh, other investment thesis do you expect to, uh, to go deep on or to add to the, yeah, add to the repertoire? You know, I'll probably stay there for a while. Yeah, it's a lot of ground to cover. And those are the areas where my heart's in it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I have a hard time saying that I'll, I'll look elsewhere because, I, yeah, I totally. think there's, there's a lot to do. And, and within fintech, how do you think about – are there other spaces that you're, you're excited about, whether it's insurance or, or lending or other sort of uh, you know, ancillary areas? Yeah, yeah, there is. Old people are coming online, <laughs> uh, just to put it you know, directly. Yeah, totally. I, you know, my dad is uh, about ready to retire and he is so underserved <laughs> by the existing industry, whether that's met, making a Medicare selection or figuring out what his cash flows are going to look like in retirement once he factors in his pension and social security and living costs and everything else. And, and you yeah, have this population of people who've got 10, 20 more years and they're just trying to live it as best as they can. And there's an outrageous amount of uncertainty because the existing solutions that aren't technology forward don't adequately meet their needs. And uh, while everyone is looking at, you know, the, the chime for teenagers and, you know, getting kids with credit cards and sort of looking at the new audience, and I, I can't blame them for, looking for financial products for the new generation. And there's certainly been a big successful wave there. I think it's time to look at the older folks. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to be sensitive to, to, to time here. Andy, uh, thank you so much for, for taking time to, to come on the podcast for people who want to go deeper and uh, you know, we'll have to come have you back for a second episode so we can talk more about some of the company building stuff you're doing and the Academy that you, that you put together. Why don't you talk a little bit about how um, you know, the Academy works and, and uh, more, you know, for people who want to go deeper in, on how unusual works. Well, why don't you give some context there? Yeah. Yeah. So our firm's called unusual. It's not a, a name we gave ourselves like any good nickname. It's something that someone else calls you. And the reason other folks were saying, Oh, that's an unusual approach or that's an unusual perspective. is it comes down to two things that were founding principles of, of our firm. The first was we care an awful lot about, where we raise money from, from and consequently who we generate profits for, our LP base. And from the very beginning, we've been opinionated on that, where we want to be conscious around where that capital comes from. And so all of our LPs are nonprofits, endowments, foundations, research organizations that represent good people and good causes. And we stuck to that from the very beginning. And now we have this amazing group of LPs that you know, they provide funds for things ranging from support for orphan boys to kids uh, attempting to afford high cost and increasingly high cost university uh, uh, education to medical research for children. So, so that's one. And two is when we look at the market today, 
it's intoxicating for a firm to become bigger, multi-stage, multi-billion, multi-thesis, multi-geography, multi-sector, everything. But we really believe that like venture done well is a boutique business. And we wanted to be boutique around the size and stage that gives us energy, which is the early stage where the leap of faith happens. Right? And we like taking that leap of faith with entrepreneurs. And we've done that ourselves during our, our, our prior careers and even with this firm. And, but what, we are, what we're observing is as firms keep getting bigger, they have to write bigger checks. And as you write bigger checks, that pulls your center of gravity towards later stage and bigger rounds. And so the early stage entrepreneur, ironically, is the entrepreneur that needs the most help and support and in a lot of ways they get the least. And so we say, well, let's flip that on its head and let's roll up our sleeves and do the work with our entrepreneurs that most other firms are unwilling to do. And that's where our academy and uh, our gap, which we is the get ahead platform. And that's where those two things fit in, where we have an in-house team of executive level experienced operators across recruiting, go to market, messaging and positioning and sales, where we can take those folks and when we lead around into a company, we can pull the full weight of our firm behind them and embed these executive level operators into the company for months at a time to help them build, to recruit three, four or five of their first hires, um, to do a teardown and rebuild all their messaging and positioning and redo the websites and the pitch decks and the sales decks to actually be on the phone, having those first 50, 75 conversations with with customer prospects and figuring out who the ideal customer is and refining the go-to-market and sales motion around that and then actually landing paying contracts for our startups right so that's the level of engagement that we thought would be novel and innovative and that entrepreneurs would appreciate so we built it around those two things and it seems to be working and it's fun and the feedback's been great Uh, and that's where the name unusual comes from and uh, it's, uh, I, I just feel thankful to be a part of it because it feels like a continuation of the work I used to do as an operator. And I still get a, a splash of that each week when I sit down with a company. Totally. Well, that, that's a great place to wrap. We, we, have, uh, we re- highly enjoy working with you and Unusual. We have one co-investment. Look forward to more. If you're an entrepreneur, I highly recommend uh, if you have the opportunity to work with uh, Andy or, or, or Unusual to take it. Andy, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Eric, appreciate it, man. Take care. Awesome. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.